Hello, and welcome to the Cannabis Corner. My name is Joshua Braff, and I'm here with my partner, farmer Adam Teitelbaum. Today, we are talking to Tsion Lencho. Her friends and family call her Sunshine. Sunshine is an advocate and leader in the cannabis industry and the co-founder of Supernova for Women, a space for women of color in cannabis. Tsion Sunshine Lencho is a Stanford-educated attorney specializing in the cannabis industry. Today, Sunshine works with cannabis entrepreneurs to help them navigate the ever-changing regulatory environment from business licensing licensing to intellectual properties and services. Sunshine, welcome. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. So glad to have you. And I also want to know about Supernova for Women. But let's just start. Um, I read a little bit of your bio, and I want to hear a bit, a little bit about your past. You come from an upbringing in which cannabis was sort of a very dangerous drug. It, it was said to all of us in the 80s that it was as dangerous as certainly heroin, cocaine, acid, um, and what we learn at it, with the evolution of what's occurring as it becomes more ubiquitous for Americans and others is that it was much more banal and, and furthermore, a medicine that was going to help people in all sorts of levels of severity. So tell us a little bit about you realizing that you were a kid and cannabis was sort of everywhere and, and no good. Yeah. So um, just to contextualize my upbringing a little bit, both my parents are immigrants. My mom would qualify currently as being undocumented. She came to the United States at 16, one-way ticket that her mother put her on from Liberia to New York City. And so my mom grew up in New York, put herself through Hunter College and high school undocumented, and really got to see the rise of the different epidemics in New York City firsthand from a low-income perspective. So I think when you approach my perspective, I have a mother who's very sort of liberal and accepting of different paths that people take because hers was non-traditional to get to college and put herself through school. And on the other hand, I have a father who was in the Ethiopian Air Force and came to the United States as um, seeking political asylum. Um, and so his perspective is one of a very regimented lifestyle where you sort of deny yourself of things that might be intoxicants. So I'm always sort of counterbalancing one really liberal approach from one parent against sort of the mindset of success that my father sort of drilled into us, which is you avoid things that might be temptation and that might harm your ability to function. And education for both parents was the key for their children to succeed in this new country that they were trying to raise us in. So they settled in D.C. <laughs> during uh, Reagan. And so one thing that you'll find if you grow up in the Washington, D.C. area inside the Beltway is that the federal government is ubiquitous and it's the most powerful thing for the people there in that community. Everybody's employed by the federal government. Uh, sort of a fallback safety net for everybody is getting a job working for the government, either as a summer job when you're a college student or planning to do so after graduation. So from that perspective, you think uh, the government is correct. Everything they're doing um, is completely transparent and that any kind of policies they're putting forward are in the best interests of the of the nation, um, especially when you think about the ways the federal government has had to intercede in sort of states' rights issues relating to segregation. How could they be wrong about drug prohibition? How could their studies not actually be valid around what it means to be addicted to, to a substance? And so... I tried to be the best and excel at all of the challenges that were presented to me. And one thing that they did for people who were growing up in the 80s and 90s is have DARE education. And the belief that any substance would harm my functioning and capacity 
to uh, excel in school was so deeply ingrained that I, when I was home over the holidays, I found a childhood photograph of myself, a school portrait, where I'm wearing a sweater proudly that says "Just Say No" in about five languages. So, in so, other words, that, so that, <laughs> that fried egg commercial was embedded. Absolutely, in, that was in a big deal for you. Oh man, and all I, of all of us, I remember. And it were, worked so well for me. I remember saying to people, "No, I'm not going to have a sip of alcohol because I don't want to harm any of my brain cells." You know, like I truly believe that there wasn't any good. To to come of people who tried any of these substances. And I didn't question much. I questioned our foreign affairs because being an African kid, you recognize that the U.S. doesn't always do the best with foreign policy. But you don't really think about the other things. You know, it just didn't bleed into my beliefs around. Um, there was no cannabis. there was no outlet to see what cannabis might be and how it separated itself from the other drugs, which proved to be damaging. Mm-hmm. And your father all the while was also saying to you, this is the federal government and this this is this is right and this isn't right. Yeah, exactly. Tell us about your education. Yeah. So with the focus being on trying to achieve as much as possible during my short span on this planet, um, I went to boarding school in New Jersey. And uh, that was an opportunity to get private education at a reduced or free cost because boarding schools are places with great endowments. And my high school in particular had received a gift from Walter Annenberg that enabled them to have 60% of our population on campus attend school on financial aid. Mm-hmm. So that really brought in sort of a, a mix and diversity of of student. And so you got to actually see people who were coming from other countries. I remember very clearly having a, a, a teach-in by students while we were in high school who were from Colombia, South America. Mm-hmm. And those students were making a case back in the 90s and early 2000s for full legalization of drugs because they were seeing what FARC was able to do in their nation mm-hmm. because of the cost of prohibition globally. And so that was probably the, the first kernel of doubt that was placed in my head that this thing might not actually have been implemented in the best way. But I still was believing that marijuana specifically was going to be the gateway for general ruination for people, right? Um, You got to see also the disparate treatment of folks depending on what kind of backgrounds they had. So, you know, we're in central New Jersey. I had to take the train to and from Maryland. So that meant I was going to Trenton every couple of weeks to go home for the holidays. And you could see the difference between the treatment in the inner city as to people using certain substances and what happened at boarding school. You definitely got kicked out at our school if you were caught with any kind of substance. But a lot of people had that safety net of parents who would come and, you know, help sort of resuscitate their child's reputation through, you know, different programming or what, what have so you. So certain kids were yeah. saving themselves. Yeah, and you see them years later, and they're still doing just fine. And, yeah. you know, I, I go home to Maryland and run into people that went to my middle school who I remember being on the bus with, and, you know, they were passing around joints, and I did my best dare impersonation of, no, thank you, I don't want any of that, you know. And they're still, you know, they're not necessarily any worse off, but it's hard to reconcile sort of that deep-seated belief that you have from when you're a kid, especially when you see how other people are able to fare when they are are cannabis users. Right, right. But there'd be no way for you to know when you saw these people lighting up on the bus that uh, they were going to be okay. They looked like people who were about to become addicted to something. Yeah, they weren't doing their homework. And they were outlaws. They didn't didn't teach their siblings summer classes based on surplus books, you know. I was in the talent and gifted program, which meant that they sort of separated you out from the the general student body and you had like the secret world of really nerdy kids. But that also meant that you didn't necessarily socialize with people who were going to challenge 
challenge your understanding of what success means and and what teenagers are supposed to be doing at that time. And I can't say that boarding school necessarily did that in any way other than an intellectual capacity. You know, so they they were very forward thinking and bringing in thought leaders to to address our school. Um, you know, Senator Booker was actually one of the people who gave a Founders Day talk that my friends and I still talk about because it was when he was running for mayor of Newark. And um, we had a number of students who actually were from Newark, part of the White Foundation, which is an organization that helps people go to secondary private schools um, from the inner cities there. And so to see someone sort of take a different approach to economic development of cities to say, no, we actually need to live in these neighborhoods that most people would avoid. Um, And then to see them now on the national level talking about what it would mean to actually legalize marijuana federally. And it's not just the business case that you hear people repeating, but, you know, he's taking a really holistic approach to it. It's really exciting, actually, to see that whole transformation from prohibition and avoidance to actually acceptance and inclusion, not just of the plant itself, but of the people who would have participated in that market that D.A.R.E. was very successful at getting me to avoid until college. Right. There's so much truth there. And also, it's very telling of of our current state in our culture, in the cannabis culture. And that is, somehow, this is all unfolding in a sort of harmonious way. And um, so many people are benefiting, and especially people who had said to themselves, this definitely deserves to be on the list that the DARE, D-A-R-E, people are talking about. And so you seeing Senator Booker and being inspired is kind of uh, an an interesting tale in that the things that he's saying lately um, are extremely important to be embraced by a large audience uh, of of Americans um, on all sorts of levels because – there are civil rights issues at the core of a great deal of this conversation. As a lawyer in San Francisco, and you have you have your own firm? I work in-house. So for people mm-hmm. who that aren't as familiar with what that means, I support an organization that invests in the cannabis industry. I had a solo practice for about two years mm-hmm. and then realized that uh, while I enjoy client service, it's a little maddening to have to cover the regulations for about up to 10 different or 20 different types of licensed activity in the state of California alone. And you're dealing with municipalities that uh, control whether or not someone can operate, and then you have to then deal with the overlay of state regulation. So I wanted to focus a little bit, and this opportunity presented itself, and I'm about, what, six months in, and it's still fascinating. I'm trying to transition people into understanding, you know, the, the Prop 215 collective model is going away, and here's what it is to be a commercial cannabis business in California in January. Adam, it's your turn, buddy. Can you correlate what's going on? There were a couple of things that I was wondering, and so the first was uh, kind of uh, taking off from where you were talking about how cannabis and other substances and how you would view them. So at what point for you did your viewpoint change regarding that? You know, I think that it's been a really slow progression for me, and um, I'm a pretty impatient person, so I'm trying to be kind with myself about how long it took me to just really have that light bulb go off and see all of the interconnectedness. So in terms of cannabis use, my mindset changed when subconsciously I followed Senator Booker to Stanford University as an undergrad. And having gone to boarding school, you know, you get exposure to a lot more things that people don't try until they're in college. And not that I had that fun of a time while at school for the faculty and board members listening to this. But, you know, I'd tried alcohol and I'd I'd seen what it was like and decided that I was going to challenge myself as a freshman in college to not drink at all for all of freshman year, which is 
good and terrible at the same time when you think about, you know, what Stanford was like at the time, which was a school that embraced people responsibly consuming and and, and, and encouraging enough alternatives to drinking um, that I don't think that people felt pressured to, to binge drink at the time. So I was, you know, not participating in, in some party across campus and a class, a, a hallmate had invited me to come outside and, and smoke a bowl with them. And at this point, you know, it was like a slow grooming of me trying to think about this, right? Like first making friends with someone who was open about their cannabis use, then asking them about the effects and feels and has that impacted them. And I think the benefit of this environment was that we were both at Stanford together. So it wasn't necessarily the person in high school who got kicked out for cannabis use. It was someone who had been using it potentially since they were high school and in high school and ended up in the same place as me, right? And so I think that's something that people currently are facing where they're realizing that all around us are people who are executives and professionals who are cannabis users. And that's sort of shifting the, the paradigm around who is and is not functional while consuming, right? right? So Right. That is a big, yeah. new, a big new truth. Yeah. You, Who's functional? This this stuff doesn't cause brain damage. Doesn't, and and no. <laughs> honestly, it doesn't really. It doesn't have the lasting effects that people think it does. And so I'm there, and I'm 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 on our beautiful campus at night in the winter time. The skies are clear. It's beautiful. The, the, you can hear the crickets chirping. And I smoke my first bowl, and I realize that this is this is the experience that I've been wanting. You know, alcohol is a depressant. Um, your recovery is terrible from it, depending on who you are. And you get I, I get a little belligerent, right? Um, I'm smoking a bowl and suddenly I have all these creative ideas and I was trying to decide between like a political science, international relations uh, type focus in school or doing art history and <laughs> studying history from a visual perspective. And On your, um, first, your first try. <laughs> you know, I was thinking about this a stuff. lot. It really made me think about a lot. And honestly, yeah. like I found that that was my approach to, to cannabis use when I want to really ruminate or meditate on something or change the way I'm thinking about something. You know, I'm a very logical person who has creativity, but given what I do in my practice, the approach is so identical each time that sometimes you've got to, you know, challenge your approach. And honestly, um, I think people will agree that, you know, it's a mind-expanding experience when you try cannabis and think about things. Yeah, your first try was this mind-expanding experience. And uh, not everybody has that. It makes me think that the way that you absorbed it means that you were in some sense uh, meant for it. To me, it almost it sounds like your endocannabinoid system was waiting for the arrival. It was waiting. Of it. it was. I was primed. That, well, that's fascinating. Could I ask you about the? Is, is it Nova? Nova. Supernova. Nova, so it's it's the it's Supernova. the same it's the same word. Do not capitalize the N, please. Uh -huh. I know that people tend to do that. We just taken the word from the English language. Um, <laughs> <laughs> this is supernova women. women exactly. Supernova yeah. women. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So what did you want to ask me, Adam? Well, I wanted to know, you know, what what it was about and what you're doing with it specifically. Yeah. So when I first came to cannabis, I was taking sort of a traditional approach to finding a role. At the time, I didn't want to practice law. I wanted to try something new. I felt that this JD made me capable of really doing anything. And so I went to my first career fair. I uh, was kind of politely laughed out the room by some people um, who I disclosed that I was a lawyer and went to Stanford. And I just wanted to get hired to work as a bud tender so I could understand what patients needed and all the products and really get up to speed with experiential learning. And was found myself in all of these spaces where I was one of the few black women I would find. 
at the same time, we had sort of this undercurrent of rumor around what the state is about to do with licensing and getting ready nationally for different markets to open up. And I was going to all of these networking events. And again, I was the only black one, one of the only black people in the room. And so for me, approaching this industry as an outsider who has seen what it looks like to have Silicon Valley grow and blossom and still not reflect the fabric of this nation. And 10 years after the founding of half of these, you know, world-changing companies, them realizing they have no diversity, it felt as if an industry such as cannabis that spent all of its time talking about reconciling the war on drugs, but was still perpetuating this issue that's pervasive in all industries in the U.S., it needed some sort of focus. And it wasn't enough to just suggest that they do better. You needed to be able to provide them a vehicle for doing better. And there's nothing like trying to create some for yourself. You know, so people often say, you know, if you don't see people getting the awards that you think they should, create an award show. And so I, along with Amber Center, Nina Parks, Andrea Unsworth, and Isa Perez came together in 2015 to coalesce an idea. And it was really trying to incubate and iterate this idea, which is the reason we don't see anyone who looks like us at these meetings is because one, they don't know about them. Two, the price point is often too high. And three, it's not really speaking to the population we want to speak to. You can't just stand up there and say, hey, ladies, everybody get involved in the cannabis industry. You just got to do it. No matter what type of logical inference can be drawn from the fact that 3.5, like black people are 3.5 times more likely to go to jail, you should still, despite that statistic, participate in an industry that is still gray market. And there was really nothing to address the fact that you know, I might be more likely to be prosecuted if I open a cannabis business than my blonde friend, even though everybody can speak to an experience where they realize that, you know, I got pulled over and I got waved off because I just batted my eyes and reminded this officer of some child of theirs, as opposed to, you know, the element that is in the room, but no one really addresses, which is race impacts outcomes. And so for us, we put race and gender at the center and started offering local workshops around the emerging uh, regulatory and statutory environment. So we didn't know what kind of traction this was going to have, but I couldn't in good conscience continue to participate, try to excel and get roles and opportunities, which I knew were going to come to me because of my background pedigree and honestly ability to execute and um, not at the same time try to bring others with me. And and my co-founders also felt the same. So we set up an event. We uh, tried to do a shoestring budget, and we were able to bring 100 people to a room at like, a, what, $10 a head. They didn't pay for it. That was our sort of sponsorship criteria to just sit and learn about what was happening at the time. And from that, we've been influential in not just our local community, but having a national dialogue about what it means to legalize, what it means to offer economic opportunities and what can we learn from other states like Colorado, Washington, Oregon, who've already tried this and what unintended consequences there have been um, from those different statutory regimes.
To you, our fans and listeners, thank you for your comments and suggestions for guests. And to answer one of the big questions, the advertising we've done up to now is for companies and causes we believe in. The production of our show and its professional pace and sound is funded by us. If you'd care to help us with more episodes of The Cannabis Corner, you can donate any amount by texting CBD to 555-888. That's text CBD to 555-888. Farmer Adam and I are so grateful to you, and we look forward to continuing in our crucial and shared cause. We are back on the Cannabis Corner, and we have Dr. Angie Krauss, who's joining us once again. We just had a great interview with her, but she has something to share with us in the realm of research of cannabis as medicine for pets. Welcome back, Dr. Angie. Tell us what you've learned. Well, thank you so much for having me. And I got to spend my last Saturday with other veterinarians that are researching cannabis and using cannabis in their practice. And I um, picked up a few tips that I really wanted to share with you and your listeners. Thank you. And the first one was a dose of THC. So I know we talked about what types of dosing we could use safely for dogs um, of THC, and I didn't really have a good answer. And there was a 1970s study done on animals uh, using THC, and they studied the minimum dose required to produce what's called static ataxia. And if you've ever seen a dog that has ingested THC, what happens is they get kind of a base-wide stance. Their legs kind of splay out, especially their back legs. And they stand there, and they just kind of sway back and forth, and we call that static ataxia. It's not specific to THC, but that is the symptom of THC. So they figured out the minimum dose of THC to cause that is a half of a milligram per kilogram IV. So we can extrapolate knowing if that is where we're, you know, definitely uncomfortable. Um, There are veterinarians that are taking that down to 0.1 milligrams per kilogram And they're starting that way, if that makes sense. So they're just cutting it, you know, 20% of that lowest dose. And they're starting with 0.1 milligrams per kilogram. Yes. And then if after three hours, if there are no um, adverse effects, then they recommend staying at that dose for a week and building up tolerance. Because just like people dogs build up tolerance in the same way. So really, this is enabling dogs uh, or cats, whatever the mammal is, to experience more of the entourage effect by including at least a safe amount of THC for them, right? Correct. The idea is, you know, what's the lowest amount of THC that we can start with so that they don't feel an uncomfortable, like a dysphoria or a high that makes them feel poorly, but that they can get that entourage and the medicinal effects of the THC, especially with painful dogs or dogs with cancer. We know that the THC can be extremely beneficial. And so this is what other veterinarians are using. And um, there's even a book out called Medical Marijuana in Your Pet. It's by Dr. Rob Silver. And um, he actually goes through how to dose your pet and how to increase the dose. So he goes through this protocol. Was he, was, did he speak at this conference or symposium, whatever it was exactly you were at? He did. Oh, wow. Yes. And he's right here in Boulder. He has a wealth of knowledge about um, marijuana and dogs and cats. That is so helpful. be so great to talk to him, right, Adam? Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much, Dr. Angie. That new research is so fascinating and 
Adam and I have been talking about the pet world a lot lately as there's so much new information coming out and as humans begin to accept more, if, 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 if the stigma is in your way or it's a generational issue, uh, the notion that pets are getting such relief uh, is awakening some humans to the notion that, hey, maybe I should give this a chance too. Did you learn more about the studies that are being conducted at Colorado State University in the veterinary program? Yes. Um, it's really exciting, um, and I, I was so surprised at how well accepted cannabis was with these, you know, like clinical researchers and how excited they are at CSU about what they're finding. And first they did a pilot study looking at the pharmacokinetics, and that's just a fancy word for um, how does it get in the bloodstream, like how well is the CBD absorbed, and then how long does it stay in the bloodstream. And so before we can do any studies, we have to know if the animals are even absorbing it. And so they looked at one product and they did a pilot study where they gave it an oil, they gave it in a capsule, and then they gave it transdermally. And the transdermal route had the least absorption and the oil route had the best. And so it's weak evidence, but it's starting to let us know that maybe oil is going to be the most bioavailable form of CBD for our dogs and cats. Now, it's really preliminary, but it's data, and it's our first kind of data points that are specific to dogs, which is really exciting. And they have two studies going right now, one for epilepsy and one for arthritis. They're not wrapped up yet, but they're really well-designed studies. They're double-blinded placebo, and which is one of the strongest forms of evidence. And they're expected to be out in a year. But I got to get more specifics about what they're using and what kinds of dosing they're using. And they use much higher doses than I use in practice, about five times higher amounts of CBD than what I'm using. Now, they use a different product, but I was encouraged to see that even at these really high doses, the dogs are tolerating it extremely well, which makes me think that I could probably, um, for my refractory cases that aren't responding, we could just go up and dose. So, for instance, maybe a pet owner who is giving their dog who has arthritis Rimadyl, for instance, might see better and more healthy results, possibly from CBD, because I know Rimadyl is really tough on dogs' livers. So, would that possibly be a good substitute? Absolutely, yes. And for cases like that, what I do is I add on the CBD and I see if we can get a better result and then I wean off of the Remedil. And absolutely, we're not seeing the effects on the liver in our preliminary pilot studies like we're seeing with Remedil. We know that Remedil can be toxic to the liver in some dogs and, and to the kidneys. And so we're, we're just not seeing this, uh, the same type of effect with CBD, which is exciting. Other than the lessons learned through dogs and cats about cannabis, there is no one who owns a pet that doesn't want that pet to live longer and be in a good state of mind. And that's what this rings true for me, is you take the chemicals away, you can even go with a high dose of CBD, and you're on your way to uh, a more peaceful aging process for your pet. I've watched Adam's pets age and watched him prolong their lives with cannabis. 
and I was there for one of his dogs, the end of one of his dog's lives, and uh, I got to get uh, some kisses and some hugs from this dog that I knew I would never see again only because of things that Adam was doing. Isn't that true, Adam? That is true, and we actually got that recommendation from the uh, veterinary staff over at Colorado State University, and, you know, I wouldn't have done it without professionals' uh, consent to do that because, of course, like anybody, I wanted the best for my dog. I wanted her to be comfortable, and uh, if, she, if she wasn't, then, you know, it was time, And but it really did prolong the comfort of her, her life. Right. Prolonged comfort is the key. Dr. Angie, thank you so much again. Is there anything else you had in mind to share with us today? You know, I had a couple other tidbits uh, that I learned about. We're here Uh, for you. One is for dogs with epilepsy. And I've had a few cases that have been on a lot of uh, seizure medications um, without much control. And we've tried cannabis with very little success. And we were able, as you know, a group of veterinarians to get together and talk about our cases. And it seems that I'm not the only one that experiences this and that many veterinarians in these cases are going to those much higher levels of CBD. And so if anyone out there is listening that's um, considering trying uh, CBD for seizures for their dog, I just want to encourage them to try higher doses, not with THC, but just with the CBD. I think that that is worth doing. And I also wanted to speak to the toxicity of THC. There have been two uh, reports of dog deaths, and I think it's important to understand um, why those dogs might have died. Um, Because as we, you know, as we overcome the stigma and as veterinarians um, have to overcome the stigma and, um, you know, reprogram ourselves to have better experiences with CBD, we see them come into the emergency room with THC toxicity. And those two dogs died because of the respiratory depression that happened with THC I see. in dogs. Heart rate um, went up? So, yeah, and the heart rate actually then goes down and oh, respiration okay. goes down. Okay. And so for some dogs that um, ingest so much THC, and as most of the products are, that are coming out on the market have higher and higher amounts of THC, what we're finding is smaller dogs can get respiratory depression, and they either have to be on a ventilator um, to get through it or be manually ventilated, and not everyone has the resources. So I just wanted to throw that out there because I know that there's this argument that, well, you know, no person has ever died because of THC toxicity, and in veterinary medicine, we can say, yes, THC can can harm your dog, and um, I just wanted everyone to understand that this is why, because they just don't breathe. It's a very important thing. We're talking about two acronyms. We have THC and CBD. So we've learned today that THC in high doses can be dangerous for your animal. And we've learned that high doses of CBD is something to very much look at as an alternative to any chemical medicine to see how your dog reacts, how your cat reacts. Is that true, Dr. Angie? That is true. You know, it's very interesting as well uh, that you mentioned uh, about, you know, trying to help dogs with seizures because... We've seen such incredible results with children who suffer from seizures, and that's where we've seen this huge influx or migration into Colorado of parents and families looking to reduce or eliminate their child's seizures. So why wouldn't that perhaps uh, have a similar effect in dogs? So it'd be great if they they could be helped by that as well. I think we're on to something. Thank you so much, Dr. Angie. You've been so helpful, and will you come back and join us? Absolutely. 
Okay, we'd love to have you back. You are so filled with interesting information, and there's a lot of excitement in Colorado in the veterinary world. Farmer Adam and I are so grateful to you for listening. We want to thank you for your suggestions and for your guest ideas as well. Don't forget to look for us on Twitter and Insta, and we'll see you next time on The Cannabis Corner. (laughs) 